Hello and welcome to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. My name is March Twisdale, and for today's interview, I'm doing things a bit differently. I've added in some clips from famous speakers throughout the past few decades. Usually, the whole interview is one seamless piece, but the topic of this show is different, and so I feel that the format must differ as well. Bigotry, based upon skin color, has no validity and must not continue in the United States of America. There is only one race, the human race. All other perceived divisions between us have been artificially created in order to justify the unjustifiable. I invite you to sit down and pay attention to what this woman has to say. Links to videos of her work beginning the day after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. can be found at marchtwisdale.com on my PPMP podcast page. And if you live on the island, I encourage you to head over to our Vashon bookshop to pick up a copy of two questionnaires. Know thyself, and you just may change the world. Sadly, American dream is dead. I will bring it back. Bigger and better and stronger than ever before. Trump will make America great again. Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. This show is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. on Saturdays and Sundays on 101.9 FM KVSH. There are a lot of other ways to listen as well. You can go to the website, voiceofvashon.org, to check out your options, or go to my personal website, marchtwisdale.com, and you can pick this up as a podcast if you'd like. Today, I am interviewing Jane Elliott. If you recognize the name, then you know we are about to embark on a powerful and deeply necessary conversation. And if you don't, trust me, this is an hour of local empowered talk radio that you do not want to miss. I want every white person in this room who would be happy to be treated as this society in general treats our black citizens. If you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. You didn't understand the directions. If you white folks want to be treated the way blacks are in this society, stand. Nobody's standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. I want to know why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. Jane, would you please be so kind as to introduce yourselves to our listeners? I am the elementary school teacher who, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, introduced her students in all-white, all-Christian Riceville, Iowa, to the concept of empathy instead of sympathy. I needed for them to find out how it feels to walk in the shoes of a person of color in this country in order to understand what Martin Luther King Jr. was demonstrating about. And so I separated my class third graders, nine-year-olds, a 
according to the color of their eyes, which is what Hitler did during the Holocaust. One of the ways they decided who got sent into the gas chamber was eye color. Mm. I separated my students according to the color of their eyes. I chose brown-eyed people to be on the top the first day, blue-eyed people were on the bottom, and we immediately found out how it feels to live in a situation in which you are treated positively or negatively on the basis of a physical characteristic over which you have no control. It made no sense. And we realized by the end of that day, and then we reversed it on Monday, repeated the exercise, we were reinforced in the knowledge that it's all a lie. This is a special week. Does anybody know what it is? National Brotherhood. National Brotherhood Week. What's brotherhood? Be kind to your brothers. Be, be kind okay, to be kind brothers. to your brothers. Like you would like to be treated. Treat everyone the way you would like to be treated. Treat everyone as though he was your brother. And is there anyone in this United States that we do not treat as our brothers? Yes. Who? Yes. The black people. The black people. Who else? In Absolutely, the Indians. And when you see, when many people see a black person or a yellow person or a red person, what do they think? Oh, look at the dumb people. What else do they think sometimes? What kinds of things do they say about black people? Oh, they're niggers. In the city, many places in the United States. How are black people treated? How are Indians treated? How are people who are of a different color than we are treated? Like they, like they are part of this place. world. They don't get anything in this world. So Why is that? Because they're different colors. What is happening in this country and was then, and is getting worse now again, is based on something so ridiculous that has only been around for about 550 years. So it's a lie that we have lived with long enough. We are being misled in this country where skin color is concerned, and it's time to put a stop to it. My entire family, my husband um, is from Mexico. He was born in Mexico on a dirt floor in Juarez in 1955. And he immigrated with his family, mother, father, and 12 siblings to the U.S. uh, the year after he was born. Um, So him and my brown sons and their friends and myself and my housemates Um, from Puerto Rico and various people that I know have been watching the videos that you can find on YouTube. Go to um, Jane Elliott with two L's and two T's and put in brown eye, blue eye. All sorts of different videos come up. And I mean, well, you know, a couple of times I I cried. Um, Other times, you know, people just, my, it was interesting watching the conversations of other people who were watching the videos. And I think the videos do such a powerful job of bringing your message forward, but I'm really interested in getting into some of the things that don't come up on the video. So you have some thoughts, obviously, about what was happening back then during the civil rights movement, and you have thoughts about what's going on right now. And I'm wondering what your experience has lended to your view of what's currently happening right now in the United States, in Washington, D.C., and just across the nation. Well, I think that what's happening right now is the result of people taking to heart the idea that you could be smart, you could be wise, you could be knowledgeable, and you could be the president of the United States even if you had black skin. We found that out for eight years. Was Barack Obama a perfect president? Obviously not. 
Was he more imperfect than any of those who preceded him? Absolutely not. We also found out that that very thought that a black man could be president of the United States and could be in the White House has triggered such anger, such animosity, such fear in about 30% of the population of the United States that they are willing to allow a dictator to become their president. It seems bizarre to have to ask the question, does America have a race problem? All the evidence says yes. But not everyone in the U.S. agrees. Surveys consistently show that while most black people believe race is an issue, most white people don't. A divergence of opinion that existed even at the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. The fear that I am seeing in white people today is causing them to do things that they would not have done 30 years ago and that the members of Congress would not have tolerated the kinds of things that our present administration is doing to this country, to this government, to the laws, to the regulation, to, to the very very fiber of our being is being destroyed by what is happening now. And it's not because the people who put him where he is are awful people. It's just because everybody finally is becoming aware that within 30 years, white people will be a minority group in the United States of America. The reason that people have children before they marry is values, not poverty. Blacks are stupid. That is correct. They are blinded by anger at whites. You don't need to say white lives matter. Because white people don't walk up to white people, put a gun to their head and blow them away. If you haven't read, and most people haven't, read some of the books that have come out that have said that if we do not do something about our low white birth rate, this country will no longer be a white man's land. Right. You need to realize that that's one of the reasons for the attempt to stop abortion. As a woman, I'm opposed to abortion, so I never had one. If you're a woman and you're opposed to abortion, don't have one. Mm -hmm. But do not tell every other woman what she must do with her body. And if you're a man and you're opposed to abortion, don't do anything to contribute to the need for one. Right. We are once again in the position in this country of being told by a group, a religious group, quite frankly, mm -hmm. what we may or may not do with our bodies. If you think racism doesn't exist, you're white. Every person on the face of the earth has black in their background. If you have your DNA done, and if it goes back far enough, you'll find that you, your DNA came from one of the countries in Africa. Right. Well, let's get over this racism business. There's only one race, and we're all members of it. We're all members of the human race. There are over over 2,500 different skin colors on the face of the earth. Now, are you folks going to tell me that we have 2,500 different races on the face of the earth? I don't think we do. You need to read the April issue of the National Geographic magazine. If you haven't gotten it, go to the library and either sign it out or steal it or anyway, read that book. Just look at the pictures. It will blow you away when you realize how very similar we all are and how very different we all are. You'll see those different faces, folks, but you will not see different races. Well, and you know, that's actually the article I'm looking at right now because I was able to, of course, pick up this um, National Geographic a couple months ago. And um, especially for me being in a family with many different shades of humans, we tend to pay attention to this issue. And so I am looking at page 79 
the rising anxiety of white America. And this this issue, folks, it's a special issue of the National Geographic that came out in April 2018. It's called Black and White. On the front of it is actually two twin girls. Uh, they're fraternal twins. And one of them it looks white because her mother looks white. And I say looks because I don't even think white is actually a scientifically accurate term anymore. It's really more of a cultural concept. And the other girl looks black because their father happens to look black. And they're both born at the same time, same parents, you know. And they're twins. They're twins, they're twins exactly. And most people think that they're just friends. They have no idea that they're even sisters. So, um, but But on this page, they talk about, you know, the rising anxiety of white America. And it is, it is, I think, very important for us to realize that problems don't go away because you ignore them or don't look at them and don't give them any attention. Whatever problem there is in your own life, whether you need a job or, you know, you need to get along better with your partner or whatever it is, you know, that plant is not going to water itself. The dog is not going to feed himself and your kids are not going to solve their problems because you just stop paying attention. Let me see. It says right here, May 22nd, 2018, uh, Betsy DeVos stated during a meeting of the House Education and Workforce Committee that if a principal or a teacher finds out that a certain child is undocumented or his or her family members are undocumented, it is a school decision or a local community decision to decide whether or not to call Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's what ICE stands for, on the child or family. Now, this actually set off a lot of alarm bells because, as the American Civil Liberties Union stated so clearly, any school that reports a child's ICE would violate the Constitution, as the Supreme Court has made clear that every child in America has a right to a basic education regardless of immigration status. This reminds me very strongly of what was happening in pre-World War II Nazi Germany, where children in Germany were being told, you know, oh, you find out that your friend at school has a grandma who's Jewish, or, you know, their, their parents are saying something over dinner that sounds like it's critical of the Nazi party or whatever, that children were being encouraged to report on their fellow children. You were alive during that time. And what do you think about when you see the stuff that's going on around othering and immigration and report on each other. I think we need to remember that someone said, those who forget the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. Most young people didn't study what happened before, during, and after the Second World War because the social studies book was going to get too thick. So they had maybe three or four paragraphs about one of the worst things that's happened to humankind, which was the world giving permission to an insane man to kill people on the basis of their religion and their physical attributes, which is one of them was eye color. Mm -hmm. The world gave him permission to do that. I read a book about Roosevelt one time, and they asked him what he was going to do about Adolf Hitler. He said, leave that man alone. He's taking care of a problem the rest of us don't want to deal with. Now, the mm -hmm. people in Congress right now are saying that very thing about this insane man in the White House. Leave him alone. He's dealing with a problem we, the rest of us don't want to deal with. People who have short memories can destroy a country. Mm -hmm. And that can allow a country to be destroyed by a, a real ignorant bigot. This man isn't just bigoted. He is ignorant beyond belief. And for our members of the House of Representatives 
and the Senate to allow this to continue tells us something about how powerful money is in this society. Mm-hmm. This is all about how do I get the money to get reelected to the House? It, it, doesn't it just boggle your mind? I mean, like, like, okay, can't like 400 Americans all decide at one time, because that would be the House and the Senate together, okay, maybe we're going to go ahead and actually lose our job, like millions of Americans deal with every single year. Fine, we're all going to stand up together and actually do the right thing, and maybe we'll lose our job. But you know what? Sometimes it's worth losing your job to do the right thing. I but just you see, if they stand together and present a united front, they won't lose their job. Mm-hmm. Therein lies the rub. The reality is that this nation cannot afford to be led down this ugly path by this this group of people who are like the Pied Piper. They're going to lead us through the hole in the wall, and the wall's going to close behind us, and we're going to be left out here poverty-stricken while those who are dancing to the Piper are on the other side of the wall, have all the resources, have all the money, and have all the power. This cannot be allowed to happen. And people have to realize that because we are members of the same race, the human race, the first thing we have to do in this country to get people to unite is to realize that they are all members of the family of man. Did you learn anything this morning? I think I learned from the experience of feeling like I was in a glass cage and I was powerless. I realized this morning that there are very few times in my life that I've ever been discriminated against. Very few. We need to change what we call education in this country into real education. And we need to stop calling those who provide that in the classroom teachers. Teachers dispense facts and figures to get their kids ready for the next standardized test. An educator, and I'm an educator. Mm-hmm. The word educator comes from the duck, deuce, D-U-C-E, D-U-C-E, which means read. The prefix E, which means out. The suffix A-T-E, which means the act of. And the suffix O-R, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. Mm. You cannot do that while you continue to teach about white superiority, while you continue to teach that Columbus discovered America, Mm-hmm. But we teach the lie, and then we, we teach that Indians were savages because they resisted us taking their land, raping their women, and killing their children. But we depict them as savages. Then you show up several John Wayne movies every once in a while, mm-hmm. and you, have, you, you nail down. By the time these kids are in sixth grade, we have thoroughly nailed down the myth of white superiority. We don't talk about the fact that Native Americans had a religion and a spiritual life, spiritual beliefs here, that were absolutely fantastic in their sincerity and in the length of time they had believed those things, and they did not learn them from white people. We do not teach reality. You see, one of the main differences between white people and other colored groups in this country is when white people come into a new environment, they immediately adjust the environment to fit their needs. When people of other color groups come into a new environment, they immediately adjust their needs to fit the environment. I'm old enough to remember when Nat King Cole couldn't walk into the restaurants in which he was going to be singing except through the back door because right. he had the wrong color skin. Right. I'm old, old enough to remember when Jackie Robinson couldn't play on certain baseball fields because he had the wrong color skin. This is going to sound weird, but roll with me for a second. The reason I think it's more than just the color issue, I think it's the color issue plus, is because 
we sit around and we celebrate the color differences in other species. We love, you know, oh, I have a calico kitty or I have a this or a that. We celebrate, they're all house cats, but ooh, they're so pretty and beautiful. They're different colors. And it's this thing that we literally get excited about. We, we celebrate it. We're happy about it. We delight in it. And then you look at humans. For some reason, instead of celebrating and being delighted by and enthusiastic, that there's always beautiful different, you know, textures of hair and colors and, and eye color and all this, instead, that becomes this controlling, confining method of creating us versus them. And that plays into the whole resource competition thing. Okay, if I don't think there's enough and I'm scared that someone's going to suffer, well, I want me and mine to be safe, and I'm okay sacrificing you and yours. But how can I make it easy to define, oh, well, here, I'll just go by this physical trait that no one has any control over. And and so that's sort of one of the questions that we were going to talk about earlier was you said, you know, as long as we separate our society into me versus them and other characteristics we have no control of, that we're never going to actually become a truly civilized civilization. It has become an us versus them, deliberately. It's called divide and conquer. Now, Mr. What's-His-Name, the president, doesn't know this because he hasn't studied anything other than probably his own navel and how to make money, how to make money from other people's efforts and from other people's work, and how to avoid paying them for that work if you can possibly get away with it. This is the kind of thing that he has studied. He has not studied sociology, he has not studied psychology, and he doesn't know anything about history. Mm -hmm. Now, that is exactly the kind of person you do not want running a country. I am now watching, at the national level, that exercise that I did based on eye color being reenacted in the government of the United States of America. Number one, the golden rule was found in Chinese philosophy, and it said, do unto others as others would have you do unto them. Mm. Treat others as they want to be treated. But once again, we good Christians adjusted that to fit our needs. We decided we were going to decide how people wanted to be treated. We don't treat others the way we want to be treated, and we don't have the right to. I, when I get on an airplane, and there's a young man ahead of me with a large bag to put in the overhead rack, if I say to him, young man, do you want me to help you with that? He is not going to be pleased. He's going to say, I can handle it. I know that. he doesn't. But when I get on an airplane and I have something to put in the overhead rack and some young man says, or old man, I don't care, or a young woman says to me, would you like help with that? I say, oh, yes, please. A year ago I would have said no, but I would certainly like to have some help now. Mm-hmm. I can't treat others the way I want to be treated. I have to treat them the way they want to be treated. And in order to mm-hmm. find out how they want to be treated, I have to ask them. And then I have to listen to the answer, and then I have to do as they ask me as long as it isn't illegal, That means we have to communicate with one another. But as long as you can teach people that that it's us versus them, that we've got the money and we've got the power, and they will bend to our desires, you can pull things like our president is right now with the NFL. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, see, as long as you designate a group of people who are really, really strong, healthy, capable, really good athletes, You can force them to do something that is against their constitutional rights in order to earn a living. That's 
called reinstitution of slavery. Now, we've already reinstituted slavery in this country with our penal system. The number of black males that are in jail today and will be there for a very, very long time is insane. But they're there not because of the color of their skin and not because they did things that were worse than any white person ever did, but because of the ignorance of white people who think that it's all right to imprison those whose skin is of a different color for the same things that white people don't get sent to prison for. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. I believe we're going to see the Players Union is, I think, going to succeed at standing up against this and saying, forget it, because they're already saying this is not acceptable. Well, I think what you have to remember is the last line of the national anthem. Mm-hmm. Oh, say that star-spangled banner yet wave, or the land of the free, the owners, mm-hmm. and the and the audience members, the fans, and the home of the brave, <laughs> the people who are playing that game and risking concussion mm-hmm. and all kinds of other injuries in order to make enough money to support their families in a in a very nice way, but look at what the price they're paying to do that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the land of the free and the home of the brave here. And it's about time that we start it. If we're going to keep that for our national anthem, we better either live up to it or change the wording. Yeah. I mean, okay, so let's talk about allyship. In the last week and a half or so leading up to this interview, I've had some conversations with some friends of mine. I, I live in a wonderful, wonderful community. I, I, it's wonderful in so many ways. I love it. And people really have all of the best intentions. And yet, when you live in any community that is mostly white, for lack of a better term, and mostly economically comfortable, although we have a growing poverty base, which is also not being dealt with by um the people who have actually a lot of economic and political power. And it's basically a gated community in a way because there's no bridge. There's only ferries, um, which creates like an economic um, challenge to get on and off the island. So anyways, when you live in this community where a lot of people are outwardly 
clear that they, they're not racist, they're not bigoted, they're progressive, they're liberal, they're this, they're that. And I think what happens is they believe that not being a part of the problem is enough. But that means they are part of the problem. Have you had anyone say to you, uh, in this lovely liberal uh, upscale community, mm-hmm. have you ever had any of them say to you, I don't see color, I'm colorblind? It happens a lot. Okay, when somebody says that to you, it's usually a white woman who is determined to prove that she's perfect. You need to say to her, I, you wouldn't have had to tell me that. I knew you were colorblind. If you weren't colorblind, you wouldn't have worn that shirt with those pants. The next one that says it to you, you need to say it's obvious that you're colorblind. If you weren't colorblind, you wouldn't have your hair that color. Mm-hmm. Now, these, these are vicious, ugly statements to make. However, when somebody tells me, who just crawled out of a yellow convertible, that they're colorblind, I know that what they're really saying is, I'm going to deny the color of your skin in order for me to feel comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. Because they'll say, well, you know what I mean. And I say, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Now, your discomfort is your problem. Don't visit it upon me or upon my other friends and family, my family members who are people of a color group other than white. Mm-hmm. I take these things personally because I consider that I'm a member of the same color group that everybody else on the face of the earth is, which is tones of brown or black. Mm-hmm. And when somebody says to me, well, as a white person, I immediately whip out a piece of newspaper, a piece of paper and hold it up against their face and say, now, do you really think you're this color? Because if you think you're this color, you really do have an eye problem. As long as people of color are willing to tolerate this nonsense, that's how long we white folks will continue to do it. So when it comes to allyship, be I'm not a person of color. I'm married to one. I'm a mother to two. And I have a huge extended family in California that I love to go visit. And by my own family, which is very, very Germanic and Irish, my mother's... In other words, you're the colorless one. Um, well, you know... Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Now, see, nobody wants I have to be color. colorless. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have color. We all do. Well, well, yeah, you do have color. Right. Because you aren't white. Right, exactly. But I'm, but I'm not in this society viewed as a person of color. In this society, I'm viewed as, quote, white, even though I don't think white exists. But my friends, who are obviously people of color... There's a sense of grief that they feel, and I think a sense of betrayal. I don't think the word betrayal is, is at all inappropriate to use. That people who they have formed authentic relationships with in their community who are not people of color, when the Black Lives Matter thing started happening, they would literally say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not racist, and, and look at me. Look, I've got black friends type of thing, you know, but I don't understand this Black Lives Matters thing because all lives matter. When those people who, are, who consider themselves white, which aren't real, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are part of the fantasy, right? when they hear Black Lives Matter, they think it says only Black Lives Matter. Right. But when Black Lives Matter people say it, they are saying Black Lives Matter too. Right. And that currently, they don't matter equally in the society, and we need to make it so that they do matter equally in the society. It's an acknowledgement of the gap, and then people who don't want to acknowledge the gap get really offended, I think. We have to see all people as human beings right. of different shades of black or brown. Right. That's what we are. 
And we can fight that until hell freezes over. That will not change the fact that we all have the same great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers. Right. It's time for us to get over this nonsense. Now, if you read the book, The Myth of Race, by Robert Wald Sussman, you'll find out where this ridiculous myth started, how it started, why it started, and why we need to get rid of it. And it's, it's as ridiculous, this myth of race is as ridiculous as the myth that the Greeks believed in, that the sun was a god that goes across the sky in a golden chariot every morning. Mm-hmm. Now, they gave that up after several thousand years. Is it going to take several thousand years for white folks to give up the myth of white superiority? Because we really don't have time to wait. We have proof. There is absolute proof that being a person of a different color group does not make you more or less intelligent, doesn't make you more or less worthwhile as a human being. Mm-hmm. But you see, we have taught and we have conditioned people to the myth of white superiority for so long that we, we white folks don't want to give it up because if that's, and for, and, and some people, for some people, if you're lying in the gutter in New York City, homeless, haven't worked for years, lying there, and mm-hmm. you look up, and a black person is still coming toward you, you can say to yourself, well, at least I'm white. That was definitely intentional back during the era of slavery in this country was the the wealth power class was able to divide the poverty class along the lines of race, because then you're exactly right, the poor emigrants to the country who were not from Africa, who were from Europe, we're being told, well, you might be super poor, you don't have a vote because you don't own land, or you're a woman, so you don't have a vote, or whatever your deal is, but at least you're not black. At least you're not from Africa. And so they were over someone. They were better than someone, so why unite together? You know, At least we're not black. Right. But affirmative action was meant to help to solve this problem. But you need to remember that the people who got the most advantage from the affirmative action programs and have until this day and will are white women. Mm. Yeah. And so when I see me too, I think, wait, 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 wait a minute. Where were you white women when Black Lives Matter came up? Where are you white women when these little black boys walking across the plate were walking across the park are shot because he's carrying something that looks like it might possibly be a weapon? Well, let's talk a little bit maybe about gay people in America. Because, um, and, you know, basically you had the gay rights movement got started. And the reason you now can be married to anyone that you love in this country across the board, and the reason many of the, we still have problems, but the reason things have gotten to the point they are as far as the good stuff that's happened is not because people who are LGBTQ, you know, all that. It's not because they alone on their own achieved it. It was because allies, and that means people who are members of the majority, who are not personally being persecuted, chose to actually step sideways, join arms with the people who were being persecuted, put themselves at personal risk and say, I'm a member of the majority group here, and I'm going to stand with this minority group and say, I fully support them, and they deserve the same rights that I have. That's taking but you, action. But, but you also realize mm-hmm. that white people were willing to do that because they realized that any one of their children 
could be a member of the LGBTQ group. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, could, that could happen. But right. their white children couldn't, be, couldn't become people, children of color. Right, right. But, but the point being, what that's, that's, that's exactly my point, because people who were willing to become allies of the LGBTQ community's need for achieving their human rights and their civil rights in this nation. My question to them, why have they not come out more strongly in support of Black Lives Matter? Because those are Black Lives that we're talking about. Exactly. So how are we and going to, to convince... that in this country, mm-hmm. because of year, 400 years mm-hmm. of miseducation and of what Nathan Rutstein refu- re- referred to as psychological genocide in the schools, mm-hmm. and you convince those who take the place of the blue-eyed students that they are less than. How did they feel yesterday? Down like a dog on a leash. If you do that for a lifetime, what do you suppose that does to them? Until we cure those who have been indoctrinated with this nonsense, the nonsense will go on. We have to change the education system. We have to change what is being taught in the schools. Now, I just got done reading a thing about homeschooling in the black community. Mm-hmm. That's tough. That's a tough job. I imagine it would be. But parents are taking it on because they cannot allow their children to be psychologically harmed right. by what goes on in the classroom in most of the schools in this country. That is not going to get better with our present Secretary of Education in power. Right. Yeah. It is not going to get better. She knows nothing about education. She knows nothing about, she has had no education about those who are other than white and mainly male with money. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a very small group of people. Right. If you know that group, you don't know many people. So, and, and once again, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. If you don't know anything about those folks, it's, it's like Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat, if they can't afford bread, let them eat cake. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on in this country today. And we used to say that was a terrible thing for any ruler to say, but that's exactly what's happening right now. So when we, what I'm wondering what it is that can inspire and motivate and, and, and wake up a person who says, look at me, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got friends who are people of color. I, I, I'm not racist. I think they're my equals, you know, blah, 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 blah. You say all the right stuff and you actually, let's say you actually achieve that. Let's say you actually never did something that was inappropriate, you know, and I do love these little, these little vines that go out there. Um, you know, wow, where are you from? You know, or, oh, wow, you know, I love kinky hair. You know, all these things that are sometimes said where people think they're actually being nice and they have no idea how. Anyways, but let's say, let's say a person's. Or as some of us did who were on the White House Conference on Children and Youth in 1970. Mm -hmm. And there there was Gene Spurlock with kinky hair, let me tell you. And several of us said, could I touch your hair? Mm hmm. And she very graciously said, I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. They get it all. We, we do these kinds of things all the time until somebody like Gene Spurlock mm-hmm. takes us aside and says, um, Jane, here are some behaviors that are really seen as negatives by people of color, particularly black people. We need to state these during this meeting so that the people who come to this meeting, to these meetings, so people from all over the United States came to the White House Conference on Children and Youth. 
And one of the things they were taught there was, here, here are some things you do not say to people of color ever right. again, as long as you live, if you want to live. Right, right. If you want to live as a civil, in a civil society, here are some things you don't say. Now, most of us have not been told what not to say, so we say what we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Everybody should go to my website, Jane, at janeelliot.com, download the printed learning materials there. Mm-hmm. The first page is a set of typical statements that white folks make that think they aren't racists. <laughs> when, uh, oh, my goodness. When Jesse Jackson was running for the presidency, everybody said, what does Jesse really want? Well, he wanted the same thing that everybody who runs, runs for the presidency wants. He wanted to be president. But because it was Jesse Jackson, and if you hadn't noticed, he was black, then he must have had some ulterior motive in mind. He didn't just want to be president. You need to read through those typical statements. Check those that you have heard or that you believe. Then go to the set of clarifications of those statements. Here are the ways in which these things are interpreted by those who hear them. Right. It may make you rethink what it is you were going to say when you came on this program or when you listened to somebody like me who admittedly is a loudmouth and who has no patience with this nonsense anymore. I'm 84 years old. I can't wait. I don't have enough time to wait for people to wake up. Right. I've done this with people of all ages for the last 50 years. Now think about that. Next year, it will be 50th anniversary of the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. and the beginning of the Blue-Eyed, Brown-Eyed exercise. When are we going to learn? When are we going to put a stop to this? Teaching white folks about racism is kind of like training mules. If you're going to train a mule, you have to put them in the stall, and then you hit them between the ears of the board, and you get their attention, and then you can train them, according to mule skinners that I know. Mm-hmm. Now. If that's what we have to do with white people, to get them to be aware of what their actions look like and what their words sound like to people of other color groups, then that's what you have to do. I've been called brutal. I've been called honest. I've been called brutally honest. I've been called the B word. Well, the B word for me is an acronym for being in total control, honey, because in a situation where somebody is making racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic, ethnocentric statements in my presence, I am liable to step forward and say, wait a minute, you're perfectly welcome to make that remark because we have freedom of speech in this country. Mm-hmm. But you need to know that you will live with the consequences of your remarks. If you are free to make that kind of statement, then I am equally free to have you deal with the consequences, and they will not be pretty. Right. I will not allow somebody to make racist statements, including my brothers, in my presence. You know, that you actually, to... that's probably a really great point, is how often, once again, it comes back again to actual allyship, which means to actually engage and take responsibility for being a part of the solution and solving the problem, not just not being the problem. But imagine... That's the, what... But that's the third, third page of the learning materials. Mm-hmm. The third page is a set of commitments to combat racism. I think it's 18 things that you can do in your own environment to deal with your own problem. So racism, you mean commitment to combat racism? I'm looking at the yeah, website right now. to combat racism. Racism is an individual problem. Now somebody's going to say, it's a societal problem. Well, folks, societies are made up of individuals. Right. And if individuals change their behaviors, we can change society. So you go through that list of, tip, of um, 
commitments to combat racism. Check yes, those that you have done, and be honest about this. Mm-hmm. Check no, those that you haven't done. Then go back, circle one that you haven't done, one that you check no, put the date beside it, and commit to doing that for one month. At the end of the month, take this paper out, make some notes along the side of it on how it changed your behavior, how it changed the way you see your world, how it changed the way people see you, and then choose another one until you have done every one of those 18. Now, by the time you've done all 18 of them, you will have come up with 18 more things, commitments to combat racism. I think one of the analogies that I can make that hopefully everyone can understand, because people who are currently in a state of feeling defensive, that they're, they're, they're on one of your lists here was, you know, well, I can't be held accountable for what my ancestors did. You know, there's always defenses. Is to just think of a situation at a school in a playground where there's a bullying incident going on. There's the bully who's beating up on the victim, and there's the people who are standing around in a circle and they're watching. And of the people who are watching, some of them are cheering it on, so they're becoming a part of the bully and a part of the problem. Some of them are just standing there watching and doing absolutely nothing. Well, they're also a part of the problem because by their silence, they're actually supporting what's going on. And a small number of them will either turn around and run to get a teacher to come and help and risk becoming a future victim as other people get mad at them for having gotten the teacher. And maybe a couple of them, and this is what I look at as an ally, would leave the circle of people, jump into the middle, stand in front of the person on the ground who's getting beaten up or kicked or whatever, put their hand in front of the other person who's the bully and say, stop. Because by doing that, they're taking action that could prevent the problem from happening at their own personal risk. But you just described our president and our House of Representatives and our Senate and our judges. You Mm -hmm. just described what's happening in this country. The only thing necessary for the perpetuation of evil is for good people to do nothing. Right. And we have perpetuated evil in this country. We were getting over it. We were making progress. After the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and into the 90s, we were making progress. Mm -hmm. And then, because the people in four states, the members of the Electoral College didn't understand what their job was or why Jefferson put the Electoral College into the Constitution, didn't understand what their job was, we got a bully. Mm -hmm. And the people who are in Congress, some of them are going along to get along because they want to to keep that job because that's good money. Yeah, it is. Some of them are saying, it's not my fault. I didn't vote that way. Some of them don't vote, so they abstain, so they can't be blamed. Some of Mm -hmm. them, a few of them, are saying we really should do something about this, but we don't want, you you don't want to poke the bear. Mm-hmm. It's time to poke the bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's time for mothers in this country to poke the bear. Many mothers, <laughs> many mothers, most mothers now t- today are working. They have to have two breadwinners in every family because of the situation we're in in this country. Mm-hmm. But mothers train children on a daily basis to stand up and be counted and not to tolerate, as Ellie Wiesel said, if it's intolerable for another person, it's intolerable for me. You must not tolerate the intolerable. And that's what we're doing in this country right now. We're, we're tolerating the intolerable as long as it's happening to somebody else, and we don't realize. And we, to- we tolerate abuse and bullying on one group. What we are right. doing is saying it's all right for you to do it to them right. as long as you don't do it to me. Eventually, they'll run out of other people, and it will come to you. 
Right. Whether Black we're Muslims and people of color. Right. How dare you in a Christian nation, which is what we call ourselves, anybody who hasn't read Frank Schaefer's book, Patience with God, needs to get it today and read it. Read Let's... everything that Frank Schaefer has written because he's mm-hmm. the man who brought the evangelical idea to the United States. His father taught it to him in the UK and Frank Schaefer brought it to this country. You need to read his book, Patience with God. People, you do not know what's going on here. You have no idea. I've been to Saudi Arabia. My daughter was married to a Saudi Arabian. I found out what Sharia law is like. This new situation we've got going on in this country is very similar to Sharia law. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to live under that. You do not want to live in a country where we judge people on the basis of their religious beliefs. Right. Or on my religious beliefs. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. See, I think I think we need to realize that God is so much bigger than we have. If you believe in God, and I happen to believe in God, I have to. My son is dying of nasal pharyngeal cancer. I have to believe there's a God. I have to believe there's something better than this. And I have to believe that we are all human beings put here. If we're put here, it's to make things better. For right. everybody, not to make them worse for somebody so it's better for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think you will appreciate this idea. I'm 45, and oftentimes you said how things got better for a while, and now they're starting to slide down. And, you know, the pendulum swings from side to side. We always hope that each time it gets to an extreme, it won't go as far the next time, right? But... I refer to myself as one of the people who grew up in what I call the Sesame Street era because I was born in 1972. And as I was growing up in my my childhood memories, you had public broadcasting was actually fully funded. Uh, You had Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. and Kangaroo. Right. There are all these really, really amazing positive messaging out there for children. It was like such mature adult crafted content for children designed to help them really you know what was that the um, the little cartoon you know how how does a how does a bill become a law i think you know and um the little songs you would sing and a lot of it's mythology and whatnot or a lot of it is you know just how we want it to be but if you tell children how you want it to be they're going to strive for that goal and then at some point Something seemed to change. By the time my children, when I went to turn on PBS and I wanted them to watch Sesame Street or whatever, you know, what I turned on, suddenly there were commercials. You know, there was the Twix bunny, the little cereal person running around. And I'm like, I lived one experience and then I watched my children be exposed to the changing thing. And and so when you, when the videos are of you in 1970 was the year, I think it was the third year you did the blue eye brown eye thing with your third graders. And there was a video taken of it, which I've watched a couple times now. I believe you're sitting in a room with about 16 or maybe 18 students. 16. Okay, that's what I thought. And I was like, that's so low a number, I must be wrong, but I thought it was 16. My son, when he went into third grade, we homeschooled, but they both had the right, if they wanted to, to explore the school system and, and choose for themselves if they wanted to learn through a schooling environment or a homeschooling environment. It was up to them. So my son tried third grade for a month, and there were 31 kids in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I volunteered to help 
here I am, a homeschooler, you know, college educated, um, have time availability, I'll, what can I help with? And I was told that um, they didn't want parents volunteering because it was time for kids to separate from their families and start to engage in their relationship with the school directly. If they had a problem, they needed to go talk it out with the school. So they wanted to push parents out. But if I wanted to come sit in a hallway alone with a kid who needed reading help or something like that, I could do a little bit of that once a week. But I couldn't be in the classroom. And I remember thinking, you have 31 kids in this room. How are you going to form relationships with these kids and be effective as an educator when there's so little one-to-one time? I, I think I think what is really interesting in what you just said is you were raised, you came up through Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me for many years that Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Green Jeans were all veterans of the Second World War and came back and said, we're going to make a difference so that this will never happen again. Mm. They did things. The teachers that I had in high school were all men who came back from the Second World War, went to school on the GI Bill, had gone through the most horrendous experience you can have, mm-hmm. went to school on the GI Bill, and instead of going in something where they could make a lot of money, went into educating pimply-faced adolescents mm-hmm. in Little Riceville, Iowa, and taught us more than we could ever have learned from somebody who hadn't had those experiences. We were really, really fortunate. We were mm-hmm. extremely fortunate to have that kind of educator. Right. I don't know that that kind of pe- that those kinds of people are in classrooms today. I would hope that they are, but I don't think they are right. because I don't think those that most of the people over the age of most of the people under the age of sixty in this country today haven't had that kind of experience, so that really don't know what the values are that we need to perpetuate in our students. We need to perpetuate the values that were in the Constitution, except for the one that said a slave is only three-fifths of a person. Right. We changed that. We amended that. So that mm-hmm. supposedly should be out of our minds. It's out of our Constitution, but it isn't out of our minds because we're still teaching it in the schools today. Right. I'll never forget the principal, our government teacher, standing there, tall, heavy-set man, not fat, I mean heavy-set man, a good, big, a good man, stood up there and in front of these seniors in high school said, after having coming back from being in the military for the duration of the Second World War, I'll never fight in another old man's war and neither will any of my sons. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's not very patriotic. And then I grew up and I realized that he was absolutely right. I would never encourage one of my sons to go into the military as long as we're still fighting in wars for other people's oil. Not right. today, not tomorrow. Didn't want it yesterday. But we had it yesterday. We could see to it that we don't have it again. We must not demonize other people because of our fear. Right here on the commitment to combat racism. So, folks, you can go to janeelliot.com. This is a great website. It's very easy to work with. Under learning materials on that third page where it talks about commitment to combat racism. And, you know, it's interesting how often... Um, I know people who will not do number four in particular. Have I openly confronted a racist comment, joke, or action among those around me? That is one that so many people around Thanksgiving in particular will come home 
or they'll go into it anxious and they'll be like, you know, I'm just going to have to sit there and keep my mouth shut while, you know, my brother Tommy is going to go on his typical rant and I don't want to cause a big family brouhaha. So, you know, I'm just going to, then you sit there and you keep your mouth shut and your little Timmy and Susie and whatever, who are your kids are sitting there watching Uncle Tommy go on his annual rant and no one says anything. When no one says anything, we're also teaching the kids that, guess what? That's okay to tolerate, that that's a, an acceptable part of life. And under number five, have I made a personal contract with myself to take a positive stand against racism, even at some possible risk when the chance occurs? And that's that's where you go to the May Day March, or that's where you go join a Black Lives Matters March. It's a positive stand against racism Maybe there's some possible risk, probably not, and you have the opportunity to do it. If there's a risk, you have to remember the risk that the black child takes every morning when he goes to school. Exactly. Right. When he walks down the street, when he walks into the building, when he walks into the classroom, then when he goes out for recess, and when some bully on the playground is going to be allowed to abuse him because the teacher oftentimes is afraid to step in and say no more because those parents of that bully are going to see to it that she loses her job if she stops him. Well, and this is, of course, one more example of what my husband calls trickle-down immorality. That's right. Is that, um, you know, we saw as soon as there was a presidential candidate being given billions of dollars of free advertising by the people who own the majority of the media outlets that flood our our society every single day. Once that person was out there saying horrendous things and not being stopped, what did we see? We have seen so many examples of of teams, youth teams, you know, baseball teams, basketball teams, whatever, where people will chant horrible racial slogans. And what shocks me is not that they did that, because I know that's out there. What shocks me is that the people who are in charge of the game, the coaches, or the parents of the other team do not instantly stop playing the game, call it out and say, that's it. You lose. You're going to forfeit if you don't stop. You've got five minutes to talk to your team and everyone else. It has to stop right now or you forfeit. Instead, there's all these videos on the internet of this stuff being allowed. And that is the point. If you don't say something and it, the bad behavior is allowed, it grows. It doesn't you go away. Not, it doesn't die. Must, it grows. You must not tolerate the intolerable. And we're getting out of time. So, Jane, thank you so much for calling in and joining us to talk and share all these insights you've had over your powerful life. Well, thank you for having me, and you're welcome. But we need to remember that different faces are not different races. I like that. There's only one race, the human race, and you are one of my cousins, and I have millions of cousins. Exactly. Thank you again very much, Jane. Folks, um, my name's March Twisdell. You've been listening to my interview with Jane Elliott. You really should go check out her website. And read everything on the bibliography. Read every book that's listed on the bibliography, people, this week. That's your assignment for this week. Put your cell phone down. After this is over, turn off your radio and read a book. I agree. All, All right. right. That's janeelliot.com. Right. Okay. All right, folks. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world 
one reader and one listener at a time. Now, go home and read a book, everybody. Thanks, Jane. Okay, you're welcome. Bye now. Bye-bye.